Sinead Perry here with Opening the Court. And you've got Ajarol here with you, your partner in crime. Today we've got our first Grand Slam winner, the one and only Michael Chang. Yeah, I mean, he's here with us to continue uh, the conversation about representation, so super excited to have him. My earliest memory of Michael Chang, I, I grew up in a group that was sponsored by Reebok. So he was big time with Reebok at that time in the early 90s or mid 90s. And he had this one shoe I remember, they were the pump and you'd actually get like a literal pump and you pump up the shoes so they feel like tighter and they were like teal and white and blue maybe. Um, and they were the sickest shoes possible. So if you didn't have your Michael Changs on, you didn't know how to play tennis at that time. <laughs> I started playing tennis at age 10, so I wasn't as good as Shanae at that point. So I guess I was a scrub without the shoes. Yeah, you wasn't a player then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so today we have a very special guest. I am super excited to talk to him. He really needs no introduction, to be honest, but we're going to give him one anyway. He was the first Asian American to win a Grand Slam and then the first American to break the 34 year drought of American man not winning uh, Roland Garros. We have Michael Chang, the legend. Thank you, Michael, for coming to opening the court. I really, really appreciate it. We really appreciate it. Um, it's great to have you here. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Good. How's how's everything going for you? How's your summer going so far? Uh, it's been going well. It's been busy. Um, I'm actually currently in uh, in Fort Lauderdale. I'm here for a girls' 14 national clay court event. Um, <laughs> so I'm here with my my oldest daughter. Um, tournament starts uh, tomorrow, and um, yeah, looking forward to a good week. That's great. Your daughter's really lucky to have a clay court specialist, if you will, uh, in her box. Trying, trying. Clay is a new surface for her. Uh, she's only played a couple of tournaments. Um, being from California, we don't see too many clay courts. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's uh, it'll be a good experience for her. And, uh, and she's playing well on it. So we'll see how the, how the week goes. Excellent. And speaking of your family, actually, both of us know your wife, Amber. Mm -hmm. We play juniors with her. Um, my birthday was two days ago. So a Amber and I have the same birthday. Oh. So if you could wish her a happy birthday for me, yeah, that would do. be great. Um, and yeah, I mean, I remember playing Amber and Junior. She used to kick my butt all the time. <laughs> um, and I got her back one time. We played at pros, I think, at a 50K in the finals on our birthday. So I grew up uh, playing junior tennis with Amber as well. So definitely say hi for me, too. <laughs> and Michael, we hear you have a new ESPN documentary coming out. Um, our producer, Chi Young, worked on it. She told us that you have some big names in it. Roger Feder, Yvonne Lindo, Jeremy Lin. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about the documentary? Yeah, so we um, we finished this documentary a little while ago, not not too too long ago. It's called The American Sun. It's really a combination of talking a lot about the French Open, a lot of the events that that um, that happened in Roland Garros uh, in Paris at the time, and that tied in uh, obviously also with you know with my parents uh, you know immigrating from from China, their history and, and coming over to the United States and. Uh, and it's an interesting story because, um, you know, we've had so many immigrants coming from Asia and uh, I don't think that story has really been told very often. And obviously, you know, my, my parents going through so much and, and sacrificing so much for their children to be able to have this life in, in the United States, to make unbelievable sacrifices for them, to play something that, um, that they're passionate about, something that they really, really enjoy and, and to be able to see, you know, so much of it culminate in a success story where, 
you know, at the time there weren't a whole lot of Asian athletes doing really, really well. And, um, you know, I think to, uh, to tie all of those things in, into this documentary was, uh, was very unique, was very special. You know, you mentioned Roger and, and Yvonne and, and, uh, and Jeremy, you know, they all kind of give their own perspectives on different aspects of, uh, of how they might know me, how they might've been influenced. Yvonne's sharing was very, very special because obviously one of the, one of the most memorable matches that I've ever played in my career, uh, was against Yvonne Lennel in the round of 16. And, um, interestingly enough, you know, I'm, I'm actually very good friends with Yvonne. I think sometimes people would be like, are you guys like enemies or anything because of that match? I said, no, actually we, we get along extremely well. And, um, interestingly enough, um, in all the times that I've known him and in all the times that we've had chats, whether it was about golf, whether it was about kids, um, whether about strategic, you know, things and the players that we coach, we have never talked about the French open. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think it's a, it's a well done documentary. Obviously there are a lot of, you know, great people behind the scenes that have put a lot of work into it. And, um, I'm excited for, uh, for when it comes out and, uh, and hopefully it will be um, uh, enjoyed by many and uh, especially in you know, a lot of people that uh, have taken that same road as, uh, as my parents have. Well, we're definitely looking forward to seeing that one. So keep us posted on when that comes, comes out. out. Um, and we're, we're, we're very excited for you with that. Can you give us a little background information about your background growing up, where you're from, where you originally grew up? My mom was actually born in uh, in India, in New Delhi, India. Uh, obviously, she's Chinese, though. Uh, my grandfather was a diplomat from uh, from China to the Dominican Republic. So so he traveled a lot. So she happened to be born in India. And my dad had come over um, from uh, from China and Taiwan to study in the United States. And so they uh, they met in uh, in New Jersey. And uh, which is where, uh, you know, both my brother and I were born. Um, my mom was actually the first one to start tennis and my dad picked it up after that. And, and I remember actually when we were young in Minnesota, we would actually go and watch my dad play in like these, these company tennis tournaments. He loved it so much. And, uh, you know, my mom one day said, you know, the kids are now getting a little bit older, you know, they have a little bit too much energy. Why don't you introduce them to, to a sport that you love? And, and, um, you know, and that's what, uh, what my parents did. And that's what my dad did. And, uh, I started tennis about six or seven years old in Minnesota, but I kind of grew up really kind of, you know, playing year round in, in San Diego because the, the weather was so great over there. And, uh, you know, Southern California tennis was one of the toughest sections and, and probably still is in, in the nation uh, outside of Florida. Did you play any other sports growing up? We talked to a lot of players um, that come on this podcast and, you know, some of them played baseball, basketball. Um, did you dabble into any other things? Um, I played a ton of soccer when I was young. I, I played some basketball. I wasn't the tallest, obviously, but uh, I did play some <laughs> basketball. Um, I played a lot of ping pong. Uh, I did a lot of fishing. Um, so I, I did play, you know, quite a bit, of, quite a few different sports, um, which I think and, you know, I think a lot of different people maybe have some different, um, you know, mindsets in that. Uh, sometimes they, they encourage a lot of kids to play lots of different sports when they're young just to become a, a, a great athlete. I know there have been a lot of you know people that have had a lot of success that way. Michael Jordan's a great example of that. Wayne Gretzky is a great example of that. And then there's the other mentality where you know they want to be able to kind of you know focus on on one singular sport and not do anything else. Um, you know, Tiger Woods was was like that. So 
you know, for for us, I mean, um, you know, my parents were very active. They loved sports. Uh, we, loved, we loved being outdoors. So uh, it was pretty natural for us to play a lot of different sports whenever the seasons came around. I think I probably only started to really, really focus upon tennis maybe when I was about 11 or 12 years old. Um, by that time, it was very difficult to to go and, um, you know, make some of the soccer games on the weekends because I had tennis tournaments to play. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, from there, obviously, my, my choice became to uh, to play tennis. And I know the USDA has been doing a lot of studies about kind of like early specialization in sports and and all that and playing those other sports before you focus on just one. Uh, do you think that's a similar mindset you have with your kids? Absolutely. You know, and I think it's one of these things also where, you know, I mean, when your kids are young, I mean, how do you really know what they're going to be good at unless you go and try different sports? You learn different talents and and uh, and I think a lot of other different sports, you know, help you to become uh, generally a, a better athlete. I, I have no question that like playing soccer, you know, helped me to be a better mover, helped me to have better footwork on, on the tennis court. There's no question. You know, for example, I, I think in in for my kids, you know, my oldest, Lonnie, who's 12, Miley's 10 and, and Micah's uh, seven. So Lonnie and Micah play tennis, but Micah's playing playing soccer. He's doing some flag football. And then Miley plays a little bit of tennis, but uh, but her main sport is golf. I think it's just constantly changing. But, you know, sometimes you just don't know necessarily what uh, what your child's talent is. And, and sometimes you need to introduce them to different things and and uh, and be able, to, be able to see, you know, how good they are at it and if they really like it and have a passion for it. You know, Miley, for example, well, obviously we started her in tennis naturally. And, um, you know, I would drop the ball and, and, and let her hit it and. And uh, and she would try to hit the ball with two hands, but she would swing. And oh, I'm like, okay, swing. all right, let's let's all right, let's try that again, Miley. You know, and she goes, is it like this, Daddy? And she she, she hit it like keep hitting it like a golf swing. Yeah. And I'm kind of looking at Amber, and I'm like, you're 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 seeing what I'm seeing here, right? <laughs> um, so we, you know, I introduced her to golf, and and mm-hmm. it was just very natural for her. She loves it, so. Um, yeah, I mean, you, you just don't know unless you uh, unless you introduce them. Being a dad and, and a coach, um, a former player, and coaching other players, how, how do you approach that with your daughter now, especially being at 14th place? How do you balance that that act? It's definitely different coaching a player on tour than yeah. you know, coaching your daughter, right? Yeah, it is. To me, I feel like it's an honor to be able to uh, to coach your your uh, your son or daughter. For me, first and foremost, I mean, I think um, I always try to keep it fun. At this age, if they're having fun out there, it's just easier to improve. It's easier to work hard. Um, it's easier for, for them to be able to look forward to the next day and, and maybe playing tournaments or in competition. Uh, I always look at it in the, in the long term. Um, it's a long road ahead. And, and unfortunately, I, I see, you know, uh, parents and kids in, in other sports and, and, you know, the parents their intentions and a lot of them are, are, are good intentions because they want their kids to do so well. Um, but sometimes I think when kids are really young, like, like they don't necessarily understand what, what hard work and discipline is. And I don't think you can expect them to, to have this kind of like, you know, intense two hours, like, you know, absolutely hundred percent focus on what you're, on what you're doing because they're, they're so young. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's something that's that obviously needs to be taught to them over a period of time. But but at this point in time, it's you know, it's learning, it's having fun. It's it's, um, you know, going out there and and, uh, and making friends, obviously. And uh, and I think for me, it's just kind of, you know, worrying about the results and stuff later on, because, 
um, as you guys well know, I mean, no one's going to remember some tournament that you played, a level five tournament five years from now. And, and kids get upset when they lose and they get excited when they win. But that's all part of the sport. And, um, and you just need to take the time to teach them and, and help them to, uh, to realize, um, you know, what a great sport tennis is and be able to embrace it and, and encourage them along the way. You know, I think all the tennis players will tell you that, uh, you know, tennis is so much more than, than just playing the sport. I mean, you learn countless things on the tennis court and off the tennis court that relate to tennis that apply to life. Mm -hmm. And that to me is, uh, is, is absolutely priceless. So wherever our kids go, you know, with, with the sport at the end of the day, you know, you want, you want tennis to be a sport for a lifetime for them. Um, and something that whenever they step out on the court, they have great memories and that they always will enjoy it. Well, you sound like the perfect tennis dad, Michael. So <laughs> congratulations to that. Exactly. And I think a lot of our listeners can take away from that. You know, if you're going to be involved in your child's sport, be supportive, make sure it's fun. When you were playing junior tournaments in Southern California, how uh, racially diverse was the competition? Boy, um, well, on the Asian side, there were very few Asians. I could probably count maybe on one hand how many Asian tennis players there were um, at that point in time. Um, now it's very different. Um, now there is, I mean, you look at the draw and, and at least half is Asian. Mm -hmm. So it's great to be able to, uh, to see that and, um, yeah, so it's uh, it's changed a lot. Yeah, I think the mentality in, in many aspects has changed because, uh, you know, back in my day, the tennis used to really be, I guess sports in general didn't really used to be as much of a focus. You know, uh, I think studies were important for Asians. Music was very important for, for Asians. Now it's broadened out. You know, now it's, sports has become huge. Uh, tennis, golf, um, there's so many Asians out there, you know, so many young Asians. Uh, kids competing and and um, and picking up their sports and dedicating unbelievable amounts of time to their sport and um, boy it's a it's a whole different ball game. Mm -hmm. When you were a junior, do you think it was something you actively uh, noticed or you weren't really paying attention to it? I don't think I really paid that much attention to it. I think when you're when you're young, you you just you you look at everybody else and they're like, you're just like they're just all tennis players. You know, you, you don't think too much about that. I, I think the only time I really started to kind of think of a little bit about that was when I actually went to Taiwan to play a junior tennis tournament. Um, and that was my first time that I'd ever been to Asia. So to be able to be there and you're like, wow, like everybody's got black hair. Everybody, yeah. you know, everybody's Chinese. Everyone's tight, you know, um, you know, looks like me in, in, in that regard. And, and uh, so that was a little bit you know, eye-opening to me. Um, mm -hmm. So I don't think I really thought that that much about it. Um, yeah, it didn't cross my mind too, too much. Yeah, I can relate. I grew up in Maryland, which was predominantly black at the time. And, and I moved to Florida, and which was not predominantly black. I went to, you know, uh, IMG Academy. And that was a, a tough thing for me. Um, and like you said before, I was not, as a young kid, I wasn't thinking about race or, or anything like that. But that was a uh, shell shocking for me.
So let's now segue into your pro career. Um, I think we turned pro at the same age. I was 16. I think you were 16 as well. Uh, we probably had little different careers <laughs> <laughs> at the end. Um, how did you come to that decision, you and your family? Yeah, I mean, I was calculated decision. Um, you know, at the time, it was not very uh, normal uh, to turn pro at such a young age. You know, the normal route was to uh, was to go to college for at least one or two years. You know, I think that uh, part of the decision to turn pro had to do for, uh, with a couple of different factors. So one, when I was 15, I, I was playing in the 18s. Uh, so I won the national hard courts when I was 15, actually beat Pete Sampras in the finals of that uh, tournament. And then uh, and then I won Kalamazoo uh, when I was 15. So obviously when you win the the national, uh, you get the wild card that uh, that comes along with it for the for the U.S. Open. And so um, I played uh, that summer. I played one tournament before the uh, before the U.S. Open. I lost first round. Uh, I played the U.S. Open as a 15 year old, won one round and then. Uh, lost uh, in five sets um, in my second round match to Naduka Odazor. Then I played a tournament in um, uh, a Super Series event, which is like a like a Masters, maybe like a, a 500 series tournament. Uh, got to the semifinals, lost to Brad Gilbert. And I played a challenger um, in Vegas um, that I won. So within a six week period of time of playing four events, I went from having no ranking at all to a ranking of 163 in the world. So from there, we started to think about the possibility of, you know, what were the possibilities? One was be to, to stay in the juniors, which in certain aspects didn't make sense because all of the players that were the best players at the time, they were all, they were all going to college. So I would be playing against um, juniors that, uh, yeah, that I'd already done really, really well against. Um, the other possibility was uh, we actually thought about maybe maybe actually going to college early, believe it or not. Uh, I took my SATs in, in eighth grade, and believe it or not, they were actually good enough to get me into Pepperdine. So Alan Fox actually was researching about uh, the possibility of going to college early, and he actually got me in uh, if that was a, a decision that I wanted to, uh, to make. And the part of the reason why we didn't do that was we looked at it from, well, say, well from a social standpoint, if you're 15... 16 years old going to college, it's, it's probably be a little bit of a, of a shock to your system. And then the other reason was that during that summer, um, I actually played in a, in a satellite tournament and, you know, all the college players, they all go play pro events. So that satellite tournament, because I didn't have any ranking, I, I had to play five rounds of quali qualification of qualies. I won five rounds in, in qualies and then I won another five matches in the, in the main draw. Every single player that I played, for the most part, were, were college players. And strangely enough, in the main draw, I played probably three college players that were, I think they were ranked in the top 10 in college at that particular time. Um, and I'd beaten them. So that was really the mindset was like, well, if we go to college, we're going to be playing against these guys that, that, uh, that you just beat. So we don't really want to go back to juniors, but and you've already done well in, in, in some of these pro events. You're already ranked 163 in the world. So that was when we decided to um, sit down, really think about things, put it to prayer, and and uh, and it ended up turning pro a little before my 16th birthday. And Michael, let me ask you, were you homeschooled or did you go to regular school? Uh, there was no homeschool back then. <laughs> ah. Yeah, there was no homeschool. So I'm I'm re regular school, what, 8 o'clock to 2.30-ish, somewhere Somewhere around there, I think I might have got out a little bit, maybe one class early, 
um, okay. because I think they allowed me to skip PE because uh, because I had tennis. But um, but they had no homeschool, you know, back then, um, which obviously is very so, different than, than now. So what was like an average training day for you then? How many hours do you think you'd train? Uh, I trained for about an hour and a half to two hours after my dad would get home from work. My dad would get home from work about five, five thirty. We would go and, and, uh, and practice, come back and, uh, I'd eat dinner and then, uh, and then go to sleep. And then I would try to get my homework done before my dad got back from work. That was the typical yeah. day. Amazing. Yeah. Wow. So your training sessions must've been really focused and disciplined to get that much I mean, yeah. I think they were focused and disciplined, but I think they were fun. I don't, I don't think that they were certainly as intense as they are nowadays. Um, mm -hmm. I do think that some of these schedules that some of these kids are having at a really young age, I do think that they need to be a little bit careful. Some of these kids are applying, you know, four hours of tennis and they've got off-court training and I know they're doing homeschooling and, and uh, you know, everybody's different, but there is always that, you know, caution of, of uh of getting a little bit burned out or in, even injury you know these young bodies can only take so much you know for our 12 year old daughter I and mean, we only do one one practice a day and that's been very very purposeful you know that 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 might be for one hour that might be for you know a few hours but rarely will we ever do uh two sessions at this point in time just because you know we know her body's growing and uh it's just easy to, i think to uh to, to overdo it you know, there's obviously a lot of things to, to, to work on, but once again, I think you need to take a, a, a long-term approach to, uh, to a lot of things because, uh, you always want longevity and, uh, you know, when it comes down to, uh, to tennis, enjoyment, passion, and, and being healthy. This is interesting because, you know, did, did you decide, well, prior to being 163 and winning all those tournaments in, you know, six weeks, were you before then, like, I want to be pro, did I ever cross your mind? Um, I think it crossed my mind in the sense that, that, um, you know, what little kids want to do when they're young crosses their minds. You know, one day it's, I want to be a tennis player. One day I want to be a doctor. One day I want to do this. One day I want to do that. I didn't really start to really, really think about what I really wanted to do until that point in time where we started to, 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 you know, to, uh, uh, to make a decision about whether to turn pro or not. Um, it, it came to that point that, uh, you know, this is something that I really want to do to make, to make it my career. When you're playing junior tournaments, for the most part, you're playing in front of just your parents, your opponents, parents, and friends. But all of a sudden you're, you're at the U S open and you're 15 years old and you're like, wow, there are a lot of people. This is so exciting. And, you know, people are going nuts and they're just so excited for, um, for what you're doing out there. For me, it was like, wow, this is something that I, I hope to do and hope hope to excel at and, uh, and hopefully one day, you know, be able to make it my career. So it was, it was hard to not be excited about the possibility of, of turning pro and, and making that my career. No, that's a great point because, you know, like, like you said, like kids are now are training to be pro, you know, this four hour, five, four, five hour days because they're doing right. fitness, um, homeschooling. And, you know, you went, you did the things the right way as a, as a normal kid and you ended up excelling in something at such a young age. Um, how how was that being 16 at the US Open in the locker room with, you know, grown men and 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 fans just, you know, a lot of fans, like you said, you didn't have many when you were at the, the junior level. Yeah, I mean, um, it was uh, it was incredible. Um, I mean, 
you know, being there as an, as an amateur, um, you know, being there 15 years old, uh, I was the youngest to win a, to win a main draw match at the, at the U S open. I mean, to be in the locker room all of a sudden with guys that, you know, you watch growing up on TV, you know, McEnroe and Connors and Lendl and, and it's, it's intimidating. And there aren't a whole lot of, uh, young teenage uh, players out there. Most of the, most of the guys were in their, were in their mid twenties. Uh, so I felt a, a little bit, a little bit out of place naturally, you know, but, uh, I mean, it was, it was just, uh, it was exciting to, uh, to, to be in that kind of a surrounding. And, um, and I think especially obviously going there and, and being able to, to do well. Um, I think if you go there and all of a sudden you just get, you know, absolutely pummeled, then maybe it's not your time just yet to, to be in that atmosphere and, and to turn pro. But I think because we had, you know, good results and we were doing well, um, it, it, uh, in maybe some aspects it was risky to turn pro, but maybe in some aspects it wasn't as risky as, as maybe you would think because I did so well against, uh, you know, guys that were, were ranked pretty, pretty high. Yeah. I know we spoke to Donald Young and, you know, in different time periods, I'm sure then, you know, people just hounding you about endorsements and doing well, you know, and juniors wasn't, you know, that big of a thing then, but for him, you know, this was, very, very, very tough for him, I think, um, just to have to deal with that kind of pressure at su- such a young age. Um, he told us a little bit about him finding his footing and fitting in um, on tour. Um, and how, how did you find your place on the tour at, at that time? Because it was very short time being 16 and when you won Roland Garros. Right. So here is the here is what I think is the is the big difference. So, you know, before our generation, there weren't any teenage you know, tennis players coming out there and playing on tour. You know, Andre actually was already on tour for a couple of years. Um, by the time I turned pro um, in 88, he did not do very well. Um, his breakthrough year actually was the year that um, was in 88, actually, when when the rest of us had turned pro. Uh, Pete turned pro a little later that year, Courier turned pro. But the, the difference is that after our generation, the norm became to turn pro. And that obviously is not necessarily the, the best route for, for every junior to take. Sometimes it is, but we've seen, you know, people be very, very successful going the college route as well. Danielle Collins is a great example. John Isner is a great example. Even McEnroe O'Connor's, you know, both went to, uh, um, you know, both went to college. Stevie Johnson's a great example. But the generations that followed us, because our generation did so well, I think people jumped on the bandwagon thinking that, oh, well, these other guys are going to turn pro, you know, the following generations, and they're going to have just as much success. When I turned pro in, in 88, there was no expectation, right? There was no, I mean, well, I had endorsements from, from Reebok, but they, there weren't these expectations like, oh, wow, you're going to be the next great American, you know, Amer- American talents, you know, to go out there and play. There wasn't that expectation. For somebody like Donald, because he had such a stellar junior career, people were already expecting him to have that translate very, very quickly out onto the main tour. So when I when I came out on tour, it was kind of like, don't lose to a 15-year-old, don't lose to a 16-year-old. For I think the, the subsequent generations, it's like, hey, you know, this is now one of the best juniors in the, in, in the, in the world. And all of a sudden, they're feeling pressure because, you know, sponsors or whomever are putting pressure on them to to be able to to have the same results that they had in juniors out in the professional ranks and it's not that easy to do so um 
So the pressure was different, um, I think, our generation coming out than it is for, for some of these other generations that are following us. So you won the 1989 Roland Garros um, men's singles title at 17. Um, and then going into the tournament, uh, Bud Collins gave you the odds of a 30 to one uh, to win it. You beat Stefan Edberg in the finals in five sets. But the match everyone remembers is your fourth round match against the number one seed, Yvonne Lindell. You were 17. Lindell was 29 at the time. And you're 5'9 and he's 6'2". So how do you physically and mentally prepare for a match like this? I mean, I don't think it changes necessarily how you prepare. You know, I mean, physically, obviously, you're, you're doing all your preparations that you normally you normally do in, in getting ready for, for Grand Slam events. I think 99% uh, of the, the men on tour will, will agree with me in saying that uh, the French Open is probably the most um, physically demanding tournament. Um, out there on tour because it is on clay, um, because it is three out of five sets, uh, having to win, you know, seven tough matches. Mentally, um, I think I had a great experience in playing uh, Roland Garros in 1988. So that was my first year uh, playing. I actually won a couple of rounds and I ended up playing John McEnroe in the third round. Um, so that was really kind of my big, uh, my first big name player that I played against in a, on a really big setting, like a, like a grand slam. And, um, I can't tell you how incredibly nervous I was playing against John and, and, and partly because it was John McEnroe. Um, but partly also because like the day before he was saying the press, it was like, man, I'm going to teach this 16 year old kid how to play tennis. And I'm like, <laughs> Oh my gosh. You know? <laughs> um, first mistake I made was, uh, was I let John walk out first. Um, the Parisians love, love John because they love to see emotion in, in Paris. So um, he walks out, the door swings open and, and John walks out, you know, and the crowd goes absolutely nuts. I follow him and I'm just like, you know, I feel like I'm his uh, oh, no. person carrying his, uh, his racket bag. Um, I was so tight the first two sets. I lost 6061 in probably like 50 minutes. Finally settled down, um, ended up losing the third 6-3. Um, and there was not a, there was not a seat in the, in that court number one, but it was a great experience for me because by the time I'd come back the following year in, in 89, um, I knew what Roland Garros was about. I had that experience of playing against a lot of other guys and, and, um, you know, even going out there and playing Yvonne Lendl on center court, um, was not, was not daunting for me anymore because I had had the experience of playing these guys and I could just go out there and focus on my tennis. Oh. So this was your second Roland Garros to, to clarify for everyone? Correct. What a legend, Michael. <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> That's unbelievable. And and back to the, the Lindell match. Um, so you lost the first two sets, then you came back uh, to win the next two. But then in the fifth set, you started cramping really bad. Then came the famous underhand serve. Um, in that moment when your body's breaking down, what are you thinking? How, how are you um, digging deep and figuring out a way to make it work? Yeah, actually, believe it or not, I started cramping in the uh, at the end of the fourth. Um, ah. I was just able to hide it a, a, a little bit better. Um, by the time the beginning of the fifth came around, I just I couldn't hide it anymore. Um, you know, I was taking the water back with me on uh, back to, you know, the, the back of the court, trying to drink, trying to get hydrated to, to try to get, alleviate some of the cramps. 
you know, I think when it came down to to that fifth set, um, actually, believe it or not, at two one in the in the fifth set, I I was this close to uh, to defaulting the match. You know, the cramps were getting were getting pretty bad, and and every time I would you know sprint uh, one direction, I'd go up hard for a serve. The legs would just give out, and um, believe it or not, at two one, I actually I actually paused. I I actually started to walk toward the chair umpire. Um, to actually tell him that, like, I cannot play anymore. And I had this kind of thought process in my mind. I'm like, hey, you know, I'm out here playing Yvonne Lendl in center court. Um, you know, I, I'm now cramping. Um, I'm probably not going to win this match. Um, so what's what's the purpose for me to, to finish the match? What, if I default now or whether I finish the match, it's still the same result. And I started to, to kind of compromise my mentality, thinking like, oh, you know, not a bad day, you know, I get a chance to, I get a good write up in the paper, you know, this is, you know, 17 year old takes number one, Yvonne Lendl to five sets on center court. I'm like, ah, it's a pretty good day. That's a pretty good day. And so I started to walk toward the chair umpire and I got to the service line. Um, and when I got to the service line, I had like an unbelievable conviction from God. It was, I, I can't even explain it. It was just something that was so convicting in my heart. And, um, and it was almost like, um, the mentality was like, what are you doing? And did you want to be known as, as a quitter? Because if you quit this one time, the second, third, fourth, fifth time that you're approached with this same situation, this same kind of difficulty, you are going to quit again. And it's easier to quit the second time and the third time and the fourth time. Um, and you need to finish this match. Regardless of what the result is, you need to finish this match. So I went back and I was just like, all right, all right, that's what I'm going to do. I'm just going to go out there. I'm going to finish this match. I'm going to take it one point at a time. And, yeah. you know, whatever whatever happens results-wise, you know, uh, I'm leaving into, into higher hands. And so I just started focusing on whatever point was going on in front of me and just trying to find different ways to win a point. Um, I wanted to try to keep points short. So if I had opportunities to go for shots, I would I would go for it. Strangely enough, a lot of these shots ended up going in uh, and they kept going in. So, and I would lob balls and Yvonne would lob balls back. I'm like, okay, he's not making me move. So that's good. And then obviously we got to this point where, you know, I was up four, three, I was down 15, 30. I was in trouble again on my serve and I couldn't go up for my serve. So, you know, I would, um, my first serve, my first serve was going like 69 miles per hour and why Yvonne didn't necessarily come, come in and just, you know, swat those away. I, I don't know. But 1530, I was, uh, you know, I was thinking to myself, I, I got to do something different here because otherwise if I'm going to lose my serve again, that I'm going to, I'm going to lose this match and, and I'm up, I'm, I'm up a break at that point in time. So, you know, the thought crosses my mind for literally about maybe, maybe two seconds. I said, let's just hit an underhand serve here. So, you know, I bounced the ball. You can see when I bounced the ball, I had just this little extra thought. And all of a sudden I threw in the underhand serve, you know, Yvonne was kind of, you know, taken back a little bit. <laughs> he, he moved up, um, got jammed because of the, um, the side spin that was on it. Um, and then he ended up coming in because he was so far into the court. And then I ended up hitting a passing shot back behind him that clips off the top of the, of the net and then goes off the top of his racket. And the crowd just oh went my absolutely nuts. <laughs> and you can see Vaughn after that point, he's, he's walking back to, uh, to receive, you know, serve on the deuce side. And all of a sudden you knew it was a physical battle, but, uh, but even more so now it became a mental battle. And, um, mm -hmm. and I have to say, you know, Yvonne is the unbelievable 
professional, consummate professional when it comes to preparation, you know, being prepared for, for players. Uh, he was, he and Martina were the ones that really started to bring the physical conditioning into, uh, um, into, to, into tennis. And, um, this is probably one of the few occasions where you, where he probably didn't train for because you can't train to play against somebody who's injured or cramping or because how do you train for that? Uh, so I'm sure it was something a little bit, you know, a little bit new for him. And, um, you know, and lo and behold, those, those last few points, um, you know, ended up, uh, hit some unbelievable shots. And then he ended up obviously double faulting on, on match point. Um, you know, I moved up after the first serve to, to try to, you know, swat a second serve return for, for a winner. Cause I was up 15, 40. I'm like, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to go for one of these. If I miss it, I still got one more. And, um, unfortunately he double faulted and, um, you know, and I think, uh, you know, to this day, I feel like, um, even if I were to have won another grand slam, I don't know if anything would have ever compared to, uh, to the 89 French open. Mm-hmm. Super special. Yeah. Very historic, super memorable. Amazing. Yeah, exactly. And, and to think that that's, that was a fourth round match, right? Yeah. That, that's probably the most memorable match, um, for a lot of people in their minds. I mean, definitely historic. So that's, that's incredible. Thank you for sharing that. You were the first Asian American to win a Grand Slam. At the time, when Asians didn't have a lot of representation in mainstream media, what was it like to start having all this attention on you? The following year after I won um, Roland Garros was probably, without question, probably the toughest year for me professionally. Um, I think just from trying to manage, you know, all of the press requests, um, you know, having a lot of sponsors now wanting time, uh, a lot of the expectation now all of a sudden to, uh, uh, to go out there and to win, you know, win tournaments and win matches. And, and I started to kind of buy into this a little bit. I'm like, oh gosh, I wonder if I won the, I won the French open. I should be winning like every other tournament, but nobody wins <laughs> every other tournament. Um, you know, you can be the best players in the world and, and you're still going to have weeks that you lose, but I started to buy into this. And so even if I got to the quarterfinals or something, which was a, a good result, I would be like, gosh, that's, that's not good enough, you know? And I started putting a lot more pressure on myself. Um, and, uh, and it took a while to, um, to try to find a balance in, um, you know, and what was, what was reality, what was priority, um, just to have the right expectations, the right frame of mind. Um, and probably one of the most difficult, uh, periods of time, uh, for me was going into defending my, my French open title in the following year in 1990. Um, I changed the schedule actually, strangely enough. And I played all of my clay court tournaments leading up to the 89 French on Hartrue in the United States. I didn't play a single red clay court tournament, um, in, uh, in Europe. So in 1990, I changed my schedule to play a lot of red clay court tournaments played in Rome and in Hamburg and, and Munich, all, all these different places. And I did not win a single clay court match going into defending my title. Um, so was, I lost five matches, um, three in tournaments, two in exhibitions, and I did not win a single match. Um, so it was very difficult for me going into defending. I ended up going, getting to the quarterfinals, losing to Andre. And I remember just having like a big sigh of relief that, uh, you know, that I had a good tournament and I had a good showing because I had such a poor, you know, clay court season leading up to that. So, you know, so I feel like in, in certain aspects, like I can relate 
a lot to, you know, players that have kind of dealt with that sim- same similar situation, you know, players like, you know, like Emma Ronakanu, for example, um, going through, you know, all of the pressures and, and people always say, and it's very, very true that the following year after, after you've had the most success tends to be the most difficult because all of a sudden you, yeah. you, you don't have to just focus on your tennis. Um, there's a lot of other expectations and, and, um, you know, the best players in the world will, will tell you that to be one of the best players in the world means that you're not only, you know, playing unbelievable tennis, but that you're balancing your, um, your other obligations. Um, and they are a lot. And, uh, there's no question that when it comes, you know, for each of the tournaments that you play, there's no question that, you know, the top players are having to do a lot more than the players that are ranked lower in the draw because the demand is higher and interviews and, and, um, appearances and, and, uh, you know, a lot of other things and, uh, it, it's tough to balance, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, I think once you kind of start to understand what you need to do and, and find that kind of groove a little bit, um, and hopefully you got the right support team as well, then, uh, then you kind of start to figure out what you need to do in order to be able to balance that and still, still be one of the best players in the world. What was it like being the first Asian American to win a Grand Slam? Um, that's an interesting question because I, uh, I knew it was, it was something that was very special. I don't think it really kind of hit me um, until, until two things really kind of happened. One was that um, if you can, if you may recall, the um, the situation in Tiananmen was going on during the French Open in '89. So after I had won um, the tournament, it dawned on me why I felt like God allowed me to win this tournament. Um, and I don't think it was. I don't think the tournament was really about Michael Chang becoming the youngest, you know, male Grand Slam champion. But I think there's a reason why I. Um, why I am Chinese American. And, um, and I've always felt that that God allowed me to win this tournament because just to put a smile upon Chinese people's faces during a time when there wasn't a whole lot to smile about. So the, the, mm-hmm. the like the crackdown, for example, where, you know, a few thousand uh, students lost their lives happened the middle Sunday of, of the French Open. Um, and so, um, you know, so I felt like that was, you know, really one of the reasons why, um, why I was able to, to win, to win this tournament. I haven't, I had no, no business beating Yvonne Lendl in the situation that I had. I had no business beating Stefan Edberg down, you know, two sets to one and, and saving, you know, 10 or 11 break points in the fourth set. Um, but I felt like there was a, a, a greater purpose in all of that. Um, when it really started to hit me was when I went to play in Asia that following um later on in the fall um i went to play in hong kong and and it was just it was it was absolutely nuts um the 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 crowds and of people that would come watch me play um you know walking around town you know um you know seeking autographs and pictures i mean it really kind of felt like it was kind of like this you know, kind of like a, a rock star type of, of mentality. Um, and I certainly have never in, 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 you know, in all my time ever experienced that. I, I see that on TV when, you know, when singers and stuff are, are, are dealing with that at concerts, but I never would have imagined that it would get as crazy as it did. Um, you know, whenever I would go to, to Asia, if it was in Hong Kong or, or China or Japan. I mean, it was, it was wild. So that's mm-hmm. when it really started to hit me. Like, um, this is something very unique and something very different. 
And, um, mm. and I think a lot of that had to do with because there weren't a whole lot of Asians, you know, playing sports and there weren't a whole, whole lot of Asians necessarily doing that well. And do you feel um, any pressure to kind of represent the Asian community in this way? Uh, I don't feel pressure. For me, it's a it's a it's an honor. I feel like, um, you know, it's something that, uh, you know, I'm I feel very proud of that uh, I'm in this position to be able to to share and to maybe be an example or a role model for for those that see me as a role model. I look at it as a privilege. Mm -hmm. Have other uh, Asian American athletes um, kind of come to you for advice on how to navigate that? You know, we're here in New York. I know um, just thinking of another maybe Asian American that might have had kind of your uh, situation is maybe Jeremy Lin. Um, I know with the whole Lin Sanity thing that he he had going on, maybe he had some of those same pressures that you went through. Absolutely. Um, interestingly enough, I actually uh, had some time with Jeremy, sharing with him a little bit actually before all insanity actually happened. Um, oh. So I had, yeah, I had an op an opportunity because uh, um, he has a mutual friend with uh, with Amber, and um, and so um, they had contacted us uh, asking for some advice on on um, you know on being in this professional sports uh, aspect uh, obviously obviously he's playing playing basketball at, at the time and and um, you know and then also because we we share the same you know Christian faith so um, so it was nice to be able to have that time to, to share with him and and um, uh, and how to balance all of that but uh, but yeah it was uh, that all happened before uh, before Lynn's I want to say it probably happened maybe maybe a year and a half or, or two years, maybe before, uh, before Linsanity happened. Oh, nice. So you kind of helped prepare him. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I prepared him. Um, I think I was maybe encouraging him in, in certain aspects, but, um, you know, when it did happen, it was, it was great to be able to see him just take off and, and, um, and play just some unbelievable basketball, uh, during that, that period of time. So, uh, you know, definitely cheering for him. Now we have, you know, a lot more representation with Asian Americans. We have Jess Pagula's doing really well, mm -hmm. top five in the world. Uh, we had Vanya King. She was great in doubles. Brandon Nakashima now on the men's side. Mackie McDonald, Christiane. Why do you feel it's so important to have representation on the court? I think it's always important to know, you know, where you've come from. Um, because I think that, that that does really help you to, you know, appreciate, um, you know, where you are. Um, it certainly helps you to, uh, to be able to encourage those that maybe are coming from a, a, a similar background or similar, maybe family dynamic. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, sometimes people forget that, um, you know, tennis is not just about, you know, you going out there and, and, uh, and playing your career, but, um, you know, but God's given you a life story to be able to share and, and there are other people that um, that need to be able to hear your story because they will find encouragement and and uh, and a lot of, uh, you know, positives coming from, uh, um, you know, coming from your background that they can relate and put in and be able to add to their lives and be able to enhance their lives so that they can have success, too. Um, you know, whether people realize it or not, when you're out there on stage, um, you you are a role model, you are an example. And, um, you know, if you can take advantage of that in the in the right way and at the same time, go out there and make the most of the talent that you've been given, 
then uh, then you're doing a great job. I mean, well, you've definitely paved the way for you know a lot of young players, especially Asian American, but American in general. Um, so we definitely appreciate that. Uh, Michael, look, we are very happy to have had you on Opening the Court. Um, you know, it's an honor to interview. I know you've probably answered the French Open 1989 question a million times, but thank you for coming and telling your story on our podcast. We really, really appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you very much. Yeah. Thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. I want to thank you as well, Michael. It's a really important conversation. Uh, hopefully we'll see the next Asian American Grand Slam winner soon. <laughs> We'd love to see that. <laughs> Yeah. Love to see that. <laughs> Thank you, guys. So Katrina had Arthur Ashe and Althea Gibson as trailblazers before her, someone to aspire to and look up to. And Michael didn't have that same luxury. And he was able to pave the way for himself and become a trailblazer on his own and to inspire countless Asian American players that, that came after him. You know, this is exactly why representation matters. You know, Katrina was able to see people that looked like her be successful. Michael didn't have that luxury. He needed to be the one that was paving the way for others. But people like, uh, you know, Brandon Nakashima and Mackie McDonald, they can look up to him as a role model. Maybe he was one of their role models uh, growing up. So I think that representation matters. It's important for people to see themselves on TV and in, in different roles and careers. And we're so grateful that Katrina and Michael could be resources for us all. We can definitely see how diverse tennis is actually today. Thanks for listening to Opening the Court. This is Asha Roll. And I'm Shanae Perry. Opening the Court was created and produced by Chi Young Park. Our editor is Satoku Sugiyama. Music was provided by Epidemic Sound. Follow us at Instagram, Facebook, at openingthecourt.podcast, and make sure to hit that subscribe button. And we'll see you on the next episode.